we celebrated Yeso and Alicia's wedding yesterday. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, um, I, <coughs> I grew very close with Yeso over uh, my time at college, and also I grew close with Alicia over our time at college together. So, you know, hear, hearing, I remember hearing about the dynamics of their relationship before they were married and also before they were dating. And I was even hearing about it while they were dating too. So having a little bit of glimpse into the relationship, I think um, kind of impacts the way that you see, what the impact the way, impacted the way that I saw the wedding. Obviously, because if I were to go to a stranger's wedding, then I wouldn't be as emotionally invested as I would have been for Yeso and Alicia, right? For obvious reasons. Um, but before they started dating, okay, before they started dating, without going too much into details because it's pretty personal, I remember there were a lot of feelings of, man, how long is this phase going to last, right? This back and forth, are we dating? Are we not dating? People asking them, are you guys dating? Are you guys not dating? And it's just like, dude, like, what is happening with you right now? And there, um, because I felt like at a certain point, it came to a point where it was like, you, I, you guys should either start dating or cut this nonsense out because like, <laughs> everyone's like, you know, it's not, the, not to say that you should date because everyone's been like, based on what everyone says, but anyway, so that was their pre-relationship times. And then they started dating. And when they started dating, there was a little bit of feeling of like, finally, you know, like finally they're dating. Finally, things are going somewhere. You know, like, whew, I was getting a little worried. Just kidding. So a little sense of finally, right? But as we all know, as we all know, the end of their relationship was not the fact that they started dating, right? And um, some of us were celebrating with them yesterday. And they got married. And yesterday, even more so than when they started dating, there was a sense of finally, like, if you've been talking to Alicia even a single conversation about wedding planning or the process of engagement, you know, you know there was a big exhale of freaking finally, the wedding's over. Um, like so much planning has been going on to this. We've been dating, they, not we, <laughs> they've been dating for so, yeah, woo, they've been dating for a couple of years. Um, they've been dating for a couple of years before that too. Um, but you know, what's interesting to me is even though yesterday was such a big moment and such a moment of arrival, of finally we got married, right? That did not mark the end of their time together. It did mark the end of something, right? It marked the end of their time of dating. It marked the end of their time of waiting games. It marked the end of their time of like, oh, what's going on? Like, what's this gray zone? But despite being the end of those things, it was the start of something, the start of a married relationship, a totally new game, a whole nother level of uh, commitment, a whole nother level of dynamics between them. They're going to get to know each other in ways that they've never even seen before. They're going to they're gonna wake, they're, I mean, like the night before the wedding, I slept in the same bed with Yeso. Um, I must have gotten two hours of sleep because Yeso snores, Yeso takes the entire blanket, and Yeso moves. How could one person do the three worst things that you can do in sleep? I, I'm not even joking. I woke up in like, it was my bed. First, I'm, I'm getting kind of carried away. It was my bed. I was sleeping at the, the, the last fifth of my bed. I woke up and Yeso was starfished onto the bed, covered in my blanket. 
I'm happy for my brother. I'm happy. I'm happy that he. Okay, shut, shut up. I'm happy that I was able to bless him with one last night of sound sleep. Good luck to my sister Alicia. But I share. Forget the sleeping thing. I share what the sentiments that we have over the wedding about that sense of finally and um, things ending and things beginning because these sentiments are extremely, extremely, extremely similar to what we have just read about David. They're extremely similar to what we have just read about David. So um, for those of you who are joining us for the first time or for those of you who don't know, uh, I've been going through a series on David and over the last few times that I've spoken, I've been talking about David's life coming into kingship. And that is what we're going to do in the times that I speak. And today, we have read that David finally became the king, ah, finally became the king of Israel. I think this passage, these short four verses, these short four verses are very, 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 very special. Um, And if, if you have just been with us over the last few months, then you know how special this is. Right? Um... (coughs) <coughs> the end, this, this passage marks the end of something that ended, and it also marks the beginning of something even greater, something totally new. The end of this, or this, this passage marks the end of David's life as a young guy, I would say, a young, immature um, little kid. And I know we just read that the Bible said he was 30 years old when he became king. So he's older than me, so that must mean he's pretty friggin' young, you know? But, <laughs> but reading all the passages before this verse, you kind of just get this sense of like a youthful vibe from David. Anytime he, you hear him speak, anytime you hear him interact with people around him, you get the sense that he's like young. You get the sense that he's growing. Right? You get the sense that he's still learning a lot. Um, there is a shift after this text and if you read about David moving forward, which we will, you'll notice that there is a deeper maturity that is growing within David ever since he became king. And that, I think, is what starts in these four verses. When David becomes king, um, <clears throat> it's almost like when people say, oh, I can finally get my life started. You know, I've been waiting for so long. Uh, when, when David was... Um, I think David, a lot of scholars say David was between the ages of 8 years old to like 15 years old when he first killed Goliath. So he was a kid, um, prepubescent maybe even kid. And to go from that to maybe over 20 years later to finally become king, um, you, know, you know how long he's been waiting for this. And you know how big of a deal this must have been for him. This also marks um, not just the, the sign of his maturity, but this also marks the beginning of his kingship over Israel. And we'll read more about his time as being king over Israel in the coming weeks, but um, it's sufficient to say, sufficient to say, I don't know which one, that this marks the beginning of David's time as king over Israel. <coughs> um, if, you have with, if you have been with us in one of the previous sermons that I gave, um, one of the questions that I wanted us to consider, one of the questions that I wanted us to consider was, why did God take so long in making David king, right? Uh, Like I said, David was just a little teenager when he first killed Goliath, when he first was anointed by Samuel. Samuel came to him when he was a kid, and he said, this is the anointed one of God. He will be king. And he was basically left 
without any resolution to that prophecy for 20 years. And 20 years later, after having been running away from Saul for all this time, after having been juked by other kings that tried to take the position away from kings, position of king away from him, after being, you know, being chased, after fleeing for his life for so long, he finally became king. And it almost makes you wonder, God, what were you thinking? Right? Because when David defeated Goliath, and when da- pretty much any time after David defeated Goliath, he was better than Saul. He was a better soldier than Saul was. People already looked up to David. He was a better king than Saul was because he had people looking up to him. He was looking out for people as well. But God withheld David from becoming king for almost 20 years. Why? What was God doing? And the answer to this question that I want us to examine is that I believe God, in doing so, was communicating this idea to us. He was communicating Uh, what will be our main point for today. And it is this. Despite everything that has happened in the past, despite everything that was happening in David's present, and despite everything that will ever happen in David's future, David was going to be king. Despite everything that happened in the past, present, and future, David was going to be king. And to be king, to be king implies a couple of things. To be king implies a couple of things. The first thing that the being king implies is that to be king implies that you are king over people. No-brainer, no-brainer conclusion. Right? To be king implies that you are king over people. We read in verse 1, it says this, Then all the tribes of Israel came at, to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. I'll read that again. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. And what did Israel mean when they said to David that we are your bone and flesh? Seems like a very gruesome uh, metaphor. What's the word? This gruesome comparison to make simile. Yeah, metaphor. Um, It seems that if you read just the context of what they were saying, it seems that there is an implication of David Wherever you go and whatever you do, we're going to be your people, right? We're your bone and flesh. If we are your bone and flesh, whatever you do, wherever you go, we'll be there for you. We'll be there with you. We'll be supporting you because you are our king, right? And um, this, so Brian, Brian Lee, he has a story from when he was in elementary school. And um, for some reason, I just thought of this instantly. So when Brian was in school, there was this kid in his class, I think third grade, he said, um, he always had a toothpick in his mouth. He was one of those like weirdos that always carried a toothpick in his mouth. Didn't really do any, like wasn't picking his teeth, just always had it in his mouth. Um, eventually grew to have the reputation among everyone in his class, like, hey, that's the kid with the toothpick in his mouth. Um, no one knew why, no one knew where he got it from, but that was just his thing. Then one day in class, Everyone was just chilling. Nothing was happening. And the kid was, like, like on his toothpick, like, playing with it. And in a bizarre moment, the toothpick breaks in his hands. He snaps in half. The second the toothpick snaps in half, the power went down in the school. And everyone in the class goes, Wah! Just, like, <laughs> everyone was, like, screaming at the top of their lungs because this kid, with the power of the toothpick, supposedly, had the power to destroy the school. And what Brian says is, that kid could have led a revolution against the Board of Education, and that class would have followed, right? This is what I imagine when I hear the people of Israel say, David, 
we are your bone and flesh. Um, there is an implication. There is an implication that Israel understood that David deserved an unending loyalty um, because of the fact that he was king. David deserved an unending loyalty. And what exactly did David do to deserve this? Right? It, it's any, anyone can say that they're king and they can demand loyalty. But what did David do to deserve the loyalty of Israel? And this is a question that I'll revisit later, but just, just keep that question in mind. What did David do to deserve Israel's unending loyalty? But <clears throat> despite everything that was happening at the time that David became king, um, if you were with us the last sermon, you know that the previous king of Israel, his name was Ishbosheth. He was assassinated by someone who was on David's side. And then David, in his rage of defending God's righteous man, he killed those assassins, even though they were on David's side. And there's just a lot of craziness, a lot of hecticness. But as our main point says, despite everything that was happening at the time, David was king over their people. And the people knew that David was their king. So to be king implies that you are king over people. The second thing that being king implies is to be king implies that no one else is king. To be king implies that no one else is king. We read in verse 2, and it says this, In times past, this is the people speaking, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you, David, who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Um, <clears throat> Israel is basically saying, I know we used to have two kings. We used to have Saul, we used to have Ishbosheth, but even though they were our kings, you, David, were the one who fought for us, who fought the Philistines for us. You were the one who led us, you were the one who protected us. Um, and now that you're king, no one else can be king. It should be you. It has to be you. Um, you know, the question that I asked us to keep in mind before, what did David do to deserve Israel's unending loyalty? Um, recall before that when Saul was king, um, <laughs> sorry, when Saul was king, Anytime the Philistines, which was Israel's enemy, anytime the Philistines came into the picture, Saul didn't really know what to do. Um, for example, Goliath, he was a Philistine. When he came, he was beating all of Israel's best soldiers. Saul had no idea what to do, so he sent David, a kid, a literal kid, say, hey, David, uh, why don't you take a stab at this guy, <laughs> right? And then David wins. Okay, so like, wow, David's, David's good. Then they go to war with Philistines again, David, being a little bit older, but still in his high teens or early 20s, defeats the Philistines again. Nothing to do with Saul. Right? David essentially um, was a war hero in Israel. And not only that, but he was undefeated. He was an undefeated war hero, and he wasn't even king, let alone even 30 years old. Right, so for the people of Israel, so, so when the Israel, people of Israel looked at David and said, we are your bone and flesh, no one else can be king except you, it's not a groundbreaking statement. Right? It's, it's very expected. If anything, it would be very surprising if they saw what David did and looked to someone else like, hey, Xavier, why aren't you king? Right? David becoming king and the people looking up to David, very, very expected. 
David 100% deserved to be king. Not only did David 100% deserve to be king, but there was no disputing that he was better than the kings before him. There was no disputing that no one else in Israel was, uh, was deserving to stand up and say, hey, I think I should be king instead. Right? The people of Israel understood that while David was alive, while David was king, no one else can be king. <clears throat> Which is very interesting to me because of the fact that David was held from being king for 20 years. Right? You think that if Israel really, really believes that David should have been king for so long, that something would have happened a little bit earlier. 20 years is a freaking long time. But nothing happened. When Saul died, his son became king. And it, was, it wasn't until his son was assassinated that David became king. However, however, going back to our main point, despite everything that happened in the past, despite all of David's successes and becoming screwed over time and time again, there was nothing that was going to stop David from becoming king. <coughs> Not even Saul, not even Ishbosheth, no one was going to stop David from becoming king. And okay, at this point, right, you might be asking me, hey, Chow, even if I were to agree with you that David was going to be king at one point, even if I could agree that Israel really looked up to David, even if I could agree that David deserved to be king, why should I care? Right, this happened in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel. Like, I don't even know what book comes before 2 Samuel, what comes after 2 Samuel? 1 Samuel comes before 2 Samuel. If this happened in the past, if this is Israel's long-lost history, how does this have any impact on me? How does David inevitably becoming king have any impact and any bearing on my life? And I believe that God was using David's fortunes and David's misfortunes to communicate something very important to his people, which is us. <clears throat> and it is our last point, which is despite everything that has happened in the past, despite everything that is happening in the present, and despite everything that will happen in the future, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. To be king implies that you are king over people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it says this, Now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Right? Israel said, David, we are your bone and flesh. Because of this, we give you our unending loyalty because you are our king. <clears throat> then the Apostle Paul says, we, you and I, are the body, the bone and flesh of Christ, who is our head, who is our king. <clears throat> um, I, I said something similar in a previous sermon before, but David was king over all of Israel. Right now, David is king over all of Israel, all 12 tribes of Israel. Um, for the most part, this is a very good thing for David. Right? Israel, even though they had some... Um, you know, they made a lot of mistakes in the past. They ran, they ran away from God in the past. They made idols in the past. Overall, being king over Israel, really good. Right? Jesus being king over us, not good. <laughs> not good for Jesus. 
right? David wins by becoming king over Israel. Jesus has it way worse than David did. Jesus is king over us. Sinful, wretched, greedy, selfish, arrogant, prideful, impatient, lustful, stupid, impatient, I said that already, immature, the list goes on and on. He is king over those types of people. Me being the worst of all. <clears throat> to be king implies that no one else is king. If Jesus is the only king in our lives, this is more of a challenge, really, but if Jesus is the only king in our lives, then that leaves no room for anyone or anything else to be king in our lives. Just as the people of Israel looked at David and said, David, you are definitely the king. It doesn't make sense for someone else to come up and take your place as king. Just as they didn't even need to explicitly say that, they all knew it. Um, there should be just as much understanding in our lives that when Jesus is king over our lives, there is no room for another king. No room for us to say, Jesus, you're cool, you're great, but let me focus on myself. Let me focus on my career, let me focus on my relationships, let me focus on fill in the blank. Not to say that those are bad things, but are those kings over your heart? Right? If Jesus is truly our king, there is no room for another king. And just as we asked, what did David do to deserve Israel's unending loyalty? What did David do to deserve Israel's unending loyalty? We should also be asking, Jesus, what did you do to deserve my unending loyalty? What did you do to deserve the spot in my heart of only king forever. In Romans 5, chapter 8, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> and Christ, being the perfect king, having nothing to lose, I mean, having everything to lose and nothing to gain, stepped down from heaven to meet us to be king over the most sinful people that the world has ever seen. <clears throat> he died, he became king, he died, he was king and he died on our behalf so that we can, so that we can be his bone and flesh, so that we can Say, Jesus, there is no room for another king besides you. <clears throat> and, you know, this, these points that I'm making in general, they might not have any practical application in terms of what you need to do on a step-by-step -step basis. Right? Nothing, nothing to take home for you to practice on yourself later. But if we, as the body of Christ, can come together and acknowledge the fact 
to acknowledge and believe that Jesus is our king. He was, he is, and he always will be our king. Then that right there is some firm foundation that will inevitably change our lives. Um, if that is something that we struggle to believe with today, uh, maybe that can be something we pray about. Like, Jesus, uh, I don't know where I stand. I don't know where I am at with you, but I, can, I don't think you're my king. I don't think you're the king over my life. I like you. You're pretty great. But you ask for a lot. <coughs> um, that honest prayer is a really good place to start if that is you. And... Yeah, as the priest team comes up, why don't we bow together in prayer? <clears throat> and as, as I reflect on the people of Israel looking at David, there was no question in their hearts. There was no doubt. There was no second guessing. When, but when they looked at David, they said, yeah, that's our king. That's our guy. He carried us so far. He is fighting for us now. He is winning for us tomorrow. And that is, the same, that is the same victories that Jesus has with us. So yeah, let's pray together wherever you're at.